Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Big Questions with Big John. Uh, I'm your host, Big John. I mean, you can't see the full body, body shot, but I am big. I'll just say that around the belly, especially at this age. But uh, first of all, I want to uh, say that today's episode is going to be one that I'm, I, I think I'm going to enjoy because being Greek, I have philosophy in my blood. I think it's genetic, as a matter of fact. So I'm, I'm very happy to welcome on Dr. Ian J. Scoble. And I'm going to look off here to, to make sure I get his bio correct, because I don't want to get anything wrong. He is the Bartlett Chair in Free Speech and Expression, Professor of Philosophy, Coordinator, Co-Coordinator of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Bridgewater uh, University uh, in Connecticut. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Sorry, my apologies. I should have known that. Uh, and Professor, Professor Scoble is an author of several books, uh, but probably the one that uh, like I'm familiar with, and I don't know if uh, sales-wise it's your most popular book, but I would say Deleting the State, uh, an argument about government. And Dr. Scoble is joining us today to talk about uh, liberty concepts, the philosophy, possibly the implementation, maybe the political and economic uh, ramifications of these philosophies. But as a libertarian myself, uh, little L libertarian, not necessarily a big L libertarian. Uh, I always relish the opportunity to speak with folks like Dr. Scoble, uh, just to, to see where my philosophy may have holes, something I've missed, and certainly I'm not uh, the end all for this philosophy. So, Professor Scoble, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Um, I'm glad you're here as well. Now, uh, first of all, let's start off with some basic questions here. So, um, I've always said, and people look at me aghast when I say this, I'm not interested in democracy. I'm interested in liberty um, because, you know, democracy is uh, th uh, three, uh, what is it, two wolves and a lamb just voting on what's for dinner, right? So, so I'm interested in liberty. I'm interested in the individual. I call myself a libertarian. So to that extent, can you give us uh, your definition of a liberty in general, and then perhaps a, a categorization of libertarianism as you understand it? Well, best way to characterize liberty is when your actions aren't made to be serving the will of another. Mm. Um, you know, people argue in philosophy about, you know, the, the free will question, um, but politically speaking, uh, liberty is about um, the nature of the government and the role of the uh, larger society with respect to the individual. So I have liberty to the extent that my actions are, are made to serve my own will as opposed to being made to serve the will of another. In general, um, for the sake of philosophical coherence, logical coherence really, mm -hmm. um, liberty has to be understood as commensurate with uh, others' liberties. So, so for example, um, there's sort of a natural boundary condition on, on my freedom, and that's to the extent to which it would violate the freedom of another person. So, you know, for example, if I go around um, collecting stamps, and you say, well, I'm exercising my liberty. Why are you collecting stamps? Because that's what I want to do. And right. really nobody's entitled to say anything about that. But if I go around murdering people and say, well, I'm just exercising my, my freedom. But that's a weird conception of freedom because it implies that I'm entitled to, right. you know, take other people's heads the way I take stamps. And that's not right because those people, because any coherent conception of rights would mean that I don't have a right to violate other people's rights. That would be a logical contradiction. So while my stamp collecting uh, doesn't violate anybody else's rights, my, you know, if I were collecting heads like a serial killer, uh, that would not be a, um, a really you know, coherent way to understand freedom. So normally when I talk about freedom, it's either built in and implicit or else I specify this explicitly, it's got to be commensurate with the liberty of other people. Um, right, right. And, and that's, that's in, I, I like that definition. And, and, and it kind of falls in with general, uh, what we might call libertarian principles or classic liberalism. But uh, just to just to sidetrack you a little bit, because I think it's it's very important to define this in the context of typically the pushback to libertarianism is, well, does that mean I'm free to kill you, like, as you just outlined, right? So I think in sort of as a quick sidebar, what is a right? 
because you hear people say, I have a right to my life. I have a right to my guns. I have a right to health care. I have a right to housing. I'm quick to point out what I think is the distinction in, in, in claiming, asserting rights. Uh, but let's, let's hear it from you, uh, Professor. What is a right? What can, what can logically and morally be claimed as a right on the part of an individual? I, I understand rights as rationally justifiable moral claims. So when you say something like, um, if, if I say you can't kill me, obviously you physically could kill me. What I mean when I say you can't do it is that it would be wrong for you to do it. So I'd have to be able to trot out some argument showing why it would be wrong for you to, to kill me. Um, and the same thing with stealing or, or, or what have you. Um, so these are all things that you're physically capable of doing, but that it would be wrong if you did them. Right. So um, if I can make an argument to the extent that you uh, shouldn't do it, then that would be the sort of claim that I have why you shouldn't do it. Um, <clears throat> rights can, one way to think about rights is the flip side of a duty. Um, so if, if I have a right to X, then somebody must have some duty regarding X. So the interesting question is what kind of a duty would that be, right? So you, you mentioned a right to free speech, right? So if I have a right to free speech, the duty that that imposes on others is that they can't interfere with my speaking. Um, you mentioned um, a right to bear arms. If I have a right to bear arms, it means that others have a duty not to forbid me in right. this case, particularly the government, would have an obligation not to forbid me to have them. Interestingly, a right to bear arms wouldn't imply that I'm entitled to get free guns any more than the right to free press would mean I'm entitled to be given a printing press. Right. right. Th these impose duties of non-interference. Hmm. Um, we can also talk about rights where there is a thing that's entailed that somebody has to get, like when we talk about right to health care, that implies that somebody has to provide the, the right to health care. In philosophy, we distinguish those in terms of negative rights and positive rights. Hmm. And there's nothing pejorative about the word negative there. It's just that the negative rights are the ones that impose non-interference duties on other people, and positive rights are the ones that impose provision duties on other people. Um, Neg negative meaning there's no obligation right by by an external party or organization to provision that right to you as in health care right correct yeah. the duty the duty would be of non-interference gotcha so you can have um negative right so when we talk about natural rights uh those are typically negative rights right to live right to be free right to work and acquire mm -hmm. and trade property um, positive rights show up all over the place, typically by contractual arrangement, right? So if you're a AAA member, for example, right. you have a positive right to towing services, like you're literally entitled to get them. But that's because you're a member and that's built into the membership agreement that you and they both mutually sign. But and, and I'm sorry, and the key there is the voluntary agreement yeah. between two parties or individuals, as the case yeah. may be, and, and therefore the entitlement, which I, I like the, the fact that you used entitlement instead of right, you have you're entitled to get towed. And you distinguish that whether you did it purposely or not, I'm assuming you did, uh, you're entitled to that because you entered a voluntary agreement that's enforceable. Yes, uh, as, as a matter of contract law, say. Right. And, and employment contracts are typically like this. Right. Performance contracts um, are like this. And things like your AAA membership are like this. They provide um, obligations on both parts, like I have to pay my membership fee, right? And then they have to come and tell me when I call them to do so. But if you're a non member, you would at most have a negative right, I'm free to call a towing company, no one should stop me from calling a towing company, right. but I wouldn't be entitled to a tow if I'm not a member. I nobody has an, yeah. nobody has a freestanding obligation to come. Gotcha. And tow me. Right. Gotcha. That's 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 a great that's a great example, by the way. I, I love that. Yeah, and I hope you don't mind if I steal it for future use. Uh, no, go right ahead. I've been using it. In, I've been using it in the classroom for um, thirty years. Right now, uh, one problem I could see someone who objects to libertarianism or this concept of rights, as you as we've defined them and agreed to here, is someone might say, "But don't we have a moral obligation? Do we not, as a society, enter a societal contract to say?" we have to provide for those who are sick or starving or out living in the street or something to that effect. Because typically 
in my experience, when I enter these discussions with folks, and again, good natured folks, I don't doubt their good intentions um, or their or their intellectual capacity, but it always falls back to a, quote a moral uh, persuasive technique, right? Where they try to persuade you that it's your moral obligation to help people who are less fortunate than yourself. Uh, what is the what is the proper libertarian? response to that? What is the proper liberty response to that? Well, one one way to answer that question is to say that there isn't one, because what those people are doing is mistakenly jumping from what might be our moral obligations to what the proper role of the government is. Mm. And one of the things that makes small l libertarianism an interesting philosophy is that it's strictly a political philosophy. It's an argument about the nature of government, of political authority. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily exhaustive with respect to all conceivable moral claims. Right. So there's all sorts of moral claims that you can make that don't have anything at all to do with uh, the government or, or, or political authority. For example, if I promise to help a friend move, and then when the day of the move comes, I blow it off, you could say I'm acting immorally. I violated some obligation that I had to help my friend that arose from my promising to help my friend. Mm -hmm. But it would be super weird to live in a society where I got hauled off to prison for doing that, right? right. What you want to say is, well, you know, you did a bad thing. You were wrong to your friend. That was right. But if you're going to say I treated my friend wrongly, that's a moral claim. Mm -hmm. But it's a moral claim that has nothing to do with the political order. So go back to the people you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Say it's true that we have a moral obligation to help the less fortunate. Right. It wouldn't follow from that, that that's a proper function of government. And the reason why that's uh, at best an iffy inference is that um, it spreads around the obligation in all sorts of bizarre ways, right? So if I thought that I, like, let's say I made, let's say I was like a multimillionaire or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, you, you're super, you're super rich. And so you want to use some of your money to help the less fortunate. Okay. Say that that's true. But when you say that this is, becomes a duty of the government, a proper function of the government, what it typically does is it expand, it, it extends that expense over all of the people, including weirdly people who were themselves not that well off. Right. Um, and so, the, the, like, I think you get a lot of intuitive appeal from the idea that, like, if you have Bill Gates level money or Jeff Bezos level money, then there'd be something morally wrong with you if you didn't give any of that to charity. Right. And of course, those guys do give tons of money to charity. True. But what happens is that intuition somehow ends up meaning that the guy who makes thirty two thousand dollars a year also has an obligation to uh, you know, pay for uh, the college tuition or health care of the guy who's making $31,000 a year. And that's bizarre. Not only is it conceptually weird, it's also immoral. Because what you're doing then is you're forcing other people to act in ways that they didn't choose, uh, violating their right to live and be free and to have their actions serve their own will in order to accomplish what you have posited as a moral obligation. And again, the weird thing is, even if you're right that people have this obligation, it wouldn't follow that it. it's the job of the government to use force to make them do it. Yeah. Another simple example, which you're also at liberty to steal, is you know, <laughs> if if I'm if I'm a, if I'm wealthy and I give hundred dollars to a homeless guy, you would say, hey, that was awesome, very generous of you. Um, if I get robbed and the robber takes my hundred dollars at gunpoint and then goes and gives it to a homeless guy, you wouldn't say, oh, that guy was great. He gave $100 to the homeless guy, exactly. right? You would say, hey, it's wrong for you to rob. And it doesn't matter that you gave the money to a homeless guy. It's still wrong for you to stick a gun in this guy's face and rob him. Right. No, you I also am... wouldn't say that I had made a generous donation because I had been right. robbed and hadn't chosen to give the money. There was no, uh, there was no exercise of free will to make that decision. Exactly. So exactly, and and obviously this kind of leads into your, your 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 construct, which I agree with, by the way, is that how does government help those folks that others may feel you have a moral obligation to is well they steal from you in the form of taxation right because um the old you know a lot of libertarians run around with t-shirts that say uh, uh, tax is theft right taxation is theft or whatever um but in the truest sense of the word it is because if i didn't choose to give you that amount 
voluntarily, you're taking it from me. And what a lot of people don't realize is enforceable law ends really in three uh, practical, uh, uh, leads to three practical conclusions, right? One is compliance. One is um, uh, loss of liberty, where you're, you're put in jail, say, you're in a cage. Or three, the state sends armed agents to kill you, right? So whenever someone says there ought to be a law that says you do X for the benefit of Y, my answer is always like, when you think this through, is the end result Y, does it justify putting me in a cage or killing me? Yeah, you're 100% correct on that. All laws ultimately come down to, um, you know, somebody with guns coming to make you do their bidding. And when you put it that way, it sounds, it, it sounds pretty horrible. And so most people don't think that what they're suggesting entails that. And mm-hmm. that's why there's often some cognitive dissonance. If you said, how about if I sent people to come and kill you if you didn't do what I say? Nobody would approve of that. Right. But when you say, well, shouldn't there be a law regulating five-year-olds having lemonade stands? It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And I think you're right. That dissonance does take place. And it and it and I think it gets people to think in very strange ways. Um, you know, when I think about healthcare, the argument always comes by to what if you were poor? What if you're, what if a family friend or relative had cancer and no access and this and that? Yes, my answer is why don't we as people help them? You know, that's if there's any moral obligation, it's for individuals to, to help. I have, it, it is to your point immoral to force someone at gunpoint to provide help, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a contributor of funds or whatever. And, and, when you put it like that, of course, you, that's where, to me, that's where the very common uh, slur of, of classical liberalism, libertarianism, liberty is. It's, you know, they always frame it as you are out for number one, you do not care, uh, you're a horrible robotic person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right, right. They mistakenly go from you think it's wrong to use force to accomplish such and such a goal to you don't care about that goal. And you can see that that's a fallacy when you spell it out that way. It's, it's logically fallacious. I can care about X without thinking that it's my right to force other people to do things my way. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. That's perfect. <laughs> so um, uh, moving on from that, having kind of established what we refer to as rights um, and perhaps how they relate to the government, um, I wanted to throw some terms out at you. Um, and maybe give me the brief synopsis, maybe even sort of a logical Venn diagram of how one relates to the other, because one of the things that I think uh, politically libertarianism or classical liberal liberalism uh, uh, suffers from, well, two things. One is the infighting. Get uh, three libertarians together and you get three accusations that the other two are not true libertarians. And I don't care how reasonable we all agree to be, it always degrades to that, right? Um, But um, also politically, that sort of infighting leads to what I consider to be crazy uh, factionalism or, you know, within any, uh, go to the national LP uh, convention, right? You have the the Mises folks, then you have the the more like, just to personify Larry Sharp folks who want to be very practical and sort of steering the ship. Then you have the Ron Paul guy, you know, so it's all these different things, right? So let me throw some out. We've kind of put things around libertarianism slash classical liberalism. Um, Minarchy, can you describe, you hear that in the context of libertarianism. Uh, What is minarchy? Who would be considered a minarchist in your opinion? Well, the word minarchist sort of like acoustic guitar, it's a term that's invented later to contrast it with some newer thing, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, anarchism is a thing. And so, you know, anarchism is the theory that there shouldn't be any rulers. And so the, the word minarchism was coined sort of in response to anarchist arguments, mm-hmm. but only to push back from a classical liberal or libertarian perspective. In other words, the minarchist is someone who wants to say, yeah, I'm mostly with you about um, you know, people having rights and, and minimizing the role of the state, uh, but we still have to have some little tiny bit of a state. So 
typically, uh, if you think that the government should be strongly restricted in a rights protecting way, but nevertheless, we'd still have to have at least some kind of government in order to have, say, police and courts or national defense, then those people, that's where that term minarchist Right. And it's, you know, the minimal state. Right. So the idea is that they think the government should be very minimal. Mm. Um, and, you know, the anarchist response to that is say, I agree with you that it should be as minimal as possible, but that's equal zero. Right. Whereas <laughs> right. the minarchists are the ones who, it, you know, it's a very small number, but a non-zero number. Right. Um, so a lot of the most famous uh, libertarians, Locke, Mill, Hayek, Nozick, none of those people are anarchists. Hmm. All of those people thought that the government should be as small as possible uh, and in a rights protecting way, but there would have to be some little thing uh, yeah. left for the government to do. Hmm. And uh, so that term is, is useful when you're looking at a dispute between them and anarchists. Gotcha. If you're looking at a dispute between those people and say socialists or proponents of a redistributive welfare state, then the term wouldn't be that helpful because nobody would know what you were talking about. Gotcha. So there you would just go with libertarian or classical liberal. So it depends partly on what the contrast is in a particular conversation. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, so, for the, for example, uh, and I've heard this formulation, uh, a libertarian slash minarchist, depending on his surroundings, uh, Milton Friedman, I always called himself a libertarian, obviously, but in, in certain situations, when I heard his description of libertarianism to his view, it was that he, he would always say, I'm not an anarchist, because I believe that government should exist to protect uh, negative rights. So to the extent that the government exists to protect you from bashing me over the head to take my stamps, uh, that he thought that a government should exist in, in that. So his philosophy allowed for the government to exist in that, also to protect against uh, the, the, your, your state from other states who don't share your opinion, right? right. Right, right. And so all those people are perfectly consistent libertarians. They just think that when you get to that last little bit, that, you know, the last six feet, um, it's going to have to be the government that is, say, the final arbiter of disputes or the last line of protection against force and fraud. So you, know, all, you, know, you could name all sorts of famous libertarians, and most of them would fit into that minimal state camp. Um, and they're, they're not... Um, you know, they just think the you know they they agree that the government should be minimal um, and restricted to a very small number of functions, and you know have it at, at their chief uh, root right. basis the protection of individual liberty. But we'd have to have the government in order to do that, and right. so that's that's where that term comes from. Right, and to distinguish it um, politically, say from conservatives, um, even going back to the conservatism of Ronald Reagan or say Barry Goldwater. Uh, and especially compared to the conservatives of today, the distinction would be that conservatives still want to control, want the state to control your life, but perhaps they want to control different aspects of your life as compared to, as you mentioned, socialist, communist, or traditional Democrats, correct? That's right. Yeah, and I mean, conservatism is, libertarianism ended up getting aligned with conservatism during the Cold War, mm. because uh, in as much as conservatives saw that, you know, communist totalitarianism was a bad thing, this was a natural fit for libertarians who had a philosophical apparatus for explaining why it was a bad thing. Um, but the truth of the matter is that for most conservatives, the minimal state is not the goal at all. Um, as you say, um, they also think that the government has stronger roles than most minimal state people think it does for controlling, um, well, many aspects of the traditional family, for example, or, right. or what they might call traditional morality, or um, promoting national greatness in, in all sorts of ways that go beyond protection against foreign invasion, right. things of that nature. Um, and so the um, it was an uneasy alliance at best. At, at this point, it's over mm -hmm. uh, because people who, who identify with conservatism today are actually espousing 
positions that would be completely unrecognizable to uh, classical liberal tradition and free market economists and so right. forth. You know, they're they're for protectionism. In the 80s, it was always the Democrats who were in favor of protectionist trade policies and the Republicans paying lip service to free trade, arguing for, for capitalist approaches. Right. And now even the Republican Party is all about the import tariffs and quotas and, and restricting trade. And the Democrats haven't picked up the ball and decided to become free traders either. So that leaves free market types out in the cold, of course. Yeah. Um, I've always yeah, said so yeah, conservatism is not the same thing as libertarianism right. at all. Yeah. Although there, you know, the the um, when you get into national party politics, of course, they're trying to appeal to voters as opposed right. to achieving intellectual consistency. So they'll sure. often advocate positions that I would say are uh, conservative positions. Yeah, and I I always laugh at that. I mean, you um, when when f uh, folks who were pro uh, pro tariff pro-Chinese tariffs, for, for example, uh, you know, you'd see them say, yeah, Ronald Reagan would have been proud of that, you know, and all the classical concern. No, you know, no. that was, that was, to your point, one of the few things that they retained from libertarianism um, was free trade. And uh, it was a battle, and I use this in quotes, we had won uh, to convince folks that free trade was the better uh, answer. And now it's just all shot to hell, you know, it's a, you know, like, yeah, we should do that. You know, no, we shouldn't. Anyway, um, great. So uh, let's move on to another term I see bandied about a lot. And honestly, I, I don't know too much about this. I know the strict definition, but I don't know its practical uh, implementation. Uh, uh, now I could pronounce it in Greek, uh, ironically, but in English, I may mispronounce uh, agorism, agorism. Um, what is that? And is it prevalent to any extent growing? What, what do you have to say about that? Well, you mentioned earlier the infighting. And so um, sometimes within libertarianism, um, you'll see people uh, self-categorize as right libertarian versus left libertarian. Um, Frankly, I've always been a little bit baffled by how that's supposed so, to catch. So have I, Professor. So have I. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and this is you know, I do this for a living, and I still don't always understand exactly what they're getting at there. Right. Some of the left libertarians uh, seem to exhibit a skepticism about corporate structure. That is to say, th there's a move that some of them make that you wouldn't have corporations at all. If it weren't for the state, the, the, the corporations, any sort of large scale enterprise is necessarily a creature of the state. Right. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that that's true. Although, I mean, it's true in a technical sense that when we have states, they charter corporations. But I, I think even if we had no government at all, some businesses would naturally get big in the way that corporations become big corporations. Sure. So it wouldn't be like everything was the mom and pop shop down the street. Some things would end up becoming big corporations even if we didn't right. have any government at all. But a lot of left libertarians think that's impossible and that you would never get corporations without the state. And so that gives them a sort of anti-corporate motif to some of their arguments. And you know some of that's valid because a lot of corporations of course lobby government in order to get special privileges and protections. But you don't have to be a left libertarian to, to oppose that. All right. libertarians oppose that. Correct. So the idea that corporations get special privileges and protections and subsidies from the government, that's like libertarian 101. Nobody, none of us like that. So that's not a distinguishing characteristic of what they call left libertarianism. Um, but that seems to be a lot of what drives them towards, you know, the, the idea that we should, you know, all firms should be worker owned and whatever. But of course, if you had no government at all, I imagine some firms would be worker owned and some firms wouldn't be worker owned. And you know, right. if you can, if you, if you say it has to be one or the other, that means you'd have to be enforcing it in some way that is going to lead to uh, some sort of, you know, greater role for right. the government in breaking up voluntary forms of economic cooperation. But if it's just a matter of saying, well, wouldn't it be cool if we had more worker-owned firms? Sure, that's yeah. fine. The firms are going to arrange themselves. If you had no government at all, the firms would arrange themselves in whatever ways work best. And some of them would be small and some of them would be big. And I have no idea which one would be which. And nobody else does either. Mm -hmm. um, so I think agorism, when I've heard that word, seems to refer to 
that kind of left libertarian, the idea that all of our relations are voluntary. But the more I look at, again, it's like, how is that different from all the rest of the libertarians? Um, so if agorism just means that all relations are, are voluntary, then yeah, sign me up. Uh, but I don't see how that's specifically left libertarian at all. The other way in which left libertarian, right libertarian plays out though, is um, uh, some of the some people who self-identify as right libertarian or left libertarian are sort of uh, it, it, like making a sort of expressive claim about other values that they have. Mm. Um, so right libertarians are often skeptical about open borders because they don't want to have too many brown-skinned immigrants coming into the country, but they aren't allowed to say close the borders because that's anti-libertarian. Right. So what they do is then they'll say, well, you know, we'll have all these homeowners associations. And, you know, if, if individual homeowners associations wanted to keep out the immigrants, then they could do that. Whereas people who identify more as left libertarians are going to say, well, no, immigration is good because this improves um, the, it improves the economy generally and broadens cultural diversity and whatever. Um, same thing with um, you know you know gay rights. Life libertarians are quick to associate maximal freedom for the individual with gay rights, whereas people who identify as right libertarians are often and again they can't explicitly say no one should be allowed to be gay because that would be anti-libertarian. Hmm. But what they'll do is they'll talk about. Uh, the importance of uh, voluntary association, and this can ramp up the levels of exclusion and so forth. So a lot of it is sort of um, signaling where your sympathies lie with respect to things that traditionally animate liberals versus conservatives, even if you still want to cling to it being a libertarian view. Yeah. I think at the, I think at the one, one more sec, I sure, think yeah, at, yeah. At, at the extremes of both of those, you get people that really just aren't libertarians at all. They're just conservatives or they're just progressives um, because they've gone too far away from the central concerns. But, you know, when you get closer in away from the extremes, then, you know, they're, they're still being libertarians, but they're choosing to focus on different, you know, culture war aspects of, of other sorts of things that I think uh, consist in the coherent libertarianism, you, you wouldn't get those kinds of schisms. Anyway, yes. so, sorry to go on so no, long. No, 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 not at all. I, as a matter of fact, you kind of uh, went where I was going to tag your, your statement with, which was when I hear, I've always, and I'm, I don't know if I'm being uh, arrogant or a purist or whatever you want to call it, but I, I disregard the whole left-right libertarian thing because several reasons. One, it's an attempt to force libertarianism into a, a schema dogma that it doesn't belong in. The, the whole concept of left-right excludes libertarianism, in my opinion. So someone who says I'm a left libertarian, in my opinion, is trying to do one of two things. They're basically leftists in the traditional sense who have worked into either an appreciation of libertarianism or are trying to draw votes from libertarians. So they say, I'm a left libertarian. Um, whereas the right libertarians do so from the conservative, they might be what otherwise are called conservatarians, right? They may have, oh, okay, um, we believe in free markets and stuff, but to your point, yeah, we don't think we should open up the borders or, you know, uh, 10 year olds shouldn't be selling heroin or whatever, you know, um, they're anti-drug or whatever. Um, but, uh, that's why I avoid when I talk a libertarian, I just say up or down, you're either up with liberty or, or down with it. You know, you know, it's, so I try to avoid that whole schema. And I think that's a great point you made it's i think they're trying to impose a, a completely different scheme on libertarianism libertarianism yeah, I, I is neither left or right yeah yeah i agree 100 percent. it's not the whole point is that it's neither right nor left right and to do it okay so great uh anarcho-capitalists and caps um this sounds almost like a fun thing to be but uh, uh can you give me a, a, a little bit of a more formal definition of uh, of someone who considers himself an ancap well, before we get to ANCAP, we have to talk about the CAP, right? So capitalism itself is another word that has multiple uses mm -hmm. and means different things to different people. And 
you know, the, the, the nice thing about labels is it's supposed to speed things along in a conversation. But of course, the downside to labels is that they can cause confusion. Sure. Um, you know, if, if I if I say, get me the wrench, I know you're not going to give me the hammer. Right. Because you know what the word wrench means, and it's not a hammer. But if I say, hey, capitalism's awesome, or hey, capitalism sucks, I don't even know what you're hearing when I say that word, right? right? right. And so some people think that capitalism, the word, means a system in which free and equal persons are at liberty to acquire and trade property to mutual benefit. Right. Other people hear the word capitalism and they hear big business exploits its political leverage to get special permissions and privileges to squeeze out competition and exploit its own position in the market. Okay, so I like the first one. I don't like the second one. Exactly. And of course, every libertarian likes the first one and dislikes the second one. So the question is, you say, so Scoble, are you a capitalist? It depends on who's asking me the question, right? Because if I think the person who's asked me that question means the second thing, then no, I don't like that thing. Right. If I know that the person asking the question means the first thing, then yeah, that's what I like. That's just the economic manifestation of individual liberty. Mm. Um, so anarcho-capitalism, again, that's a word that gets coined as a response to something else, right? Because we get anarcho-socialism, anarcho-communism, okay? So to, you know, not to be super pedantic here, but if you go back to Marx, one of the things that split the early Marxists was the role of the state. Um, uh, Bakunin, for example, was an associate of Marx, uh, but thought that what Marx was calling for would sort of creep itself back into being a state because some there'd have to be some administrative functionary who does the things that Marx is saying about the nationalizing of the industries and, and you know collective control of the means of production, right. the, you know all the methods of distribution that Marx presupposes. Bakunin was like, yeah, so somebody's going to be in charge of doing that. That's a government, and that's bad. So there was a split right there between the ones who wanted to go ahead with what Marx was talking about, and the ones who realized that that would just create its own little state. So. What you get is uh, people who think that you can have socialism or communism without any government at all. And that would be anarcho-socialism, anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism. There's lots of different words for that. So the, the coining of the term anarcho-capitalism was meant to respond to that by saying, no, if you're gonna have no state at all, it's gonna have to be capitalist. It's to specify that you can't have socialist you know, uh, public ownership of the means of production and distribution according to need without a government. So if it's going to be anarchistic, it's going to have to be capitalistic, but not the kind of capitalism that presupposes big business exploiting its political pull for privilege and protection, but just it would have to be, you know, the first kind of capitalism. Um, So anyway, so you know, like minarchism, which is a term that's coined to distinguish from anarchism, anarcho-capitalism is a term that's invented to distinguish it from anarcho-socialism or anarcho-communism. Gotcha. Um, so again, you know, not to keep hammering the same point, but it's like, if you're going to have maximum protection of individual liberty, it's going to be the idea where people are free to work and acquire and trade property. So if you want to call that capitalism, that's great. Sign me up. Um, It certainly shouldn't be, it it couldn't possibly be the kind of capitalism where big business exploits its political power in order to get special privilege. If it's also anarchistic, that would be oxymoronic. Um, So Again, if you ask me if I'm an ANCAP, I guess it would depend on what you meant by that. And on some readings, then I would say yes. But again, here's the other thing about the signaling. A lot of people who gravitate towards the term are the kind of right libertarians who don't want immigrants to be led into the country or uh, you know, don't want to have gay rights and that sort of thing. Um, so again, with the labels, you know, I'm... At, at this point in the, in the game, it's like I'm almost more wary of using labels uh, if they're going to create more confusion than they would solve or, or make somebody think about me something that I didn't actually say. 
right. Um, so it's, but so ANCAP, again, it's historically of some use to distinguish it in the literature from anarcho-communists. Um, but again, if you go around, you know, with your Twitter ID says ANCAP, uh, that's possibly misleading or it could or it could just be a signal uh that you don't like immigrants um, gotcha gotcha okay and uh you've mentioned the word obviously all along but to me this is the logical conclusion of libertarianism if you really just keep taking step after step after step logically or syllogistically and that would be anarchy and and anarchy uh to me, as as you've referenced, means no no state at all, um, a stateless existence. Everything is based on volunteerism, um, and uh, it's not Somalian pirates uh, taking over ships, as a lot of people love to say. Oh, the anarchists, you know, it's not the anarchists uh, from the turn of the 20th century in the U.S. Uh, necessarily. Um, so. Uh, so just so you don't end up repeating yourself a lot. Anarchy literally is individuals working a, a complete fr free association, complete volunteerism, um, uh, so that, that there's no role for government. Um, so I'll just jump to the potential objections again from what I hear. You know, anarchy sounds good. It sounds good to me. I don't consider myself an anarchist, right? If anything on this list that we've got, I'd be a minarchist or just a pure libertarian. I, I'm not an anarchist because I think, practically speaking, how do we relate to, to other countries, other organizations, other cliques, whatever level of accumulation you want to go to? How do we deal with people who don't share our anarchist views? Um, are we, in essence, um, agreeing to some sort of suicide uh, pact by saying, hey, we're anarchists. We may not necessarily be pacifists. I, I, I reserve the right to self-defense, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm a small nation that's uh, an anarchist nation and here comes big imperialist nation X, realistically speaking, without some sort of government how or some sort of state, how are we going to protect our liberty? How do you respond to that? couple different things. For one, if it's a small nation, it actually isn't going to matter at all whether it's a bunch of anarchists or a bunch of monarchists, right? Mm. Like Belgium, right? Let's say France decided it wanted to annex Belgium. It could do that. I mean, physically, it has the power to do that. Right. Um, so the, the, the idea that, it, you know, no, no, we're anarchists, that's really irrelevant, right? Because it's a small little nation compared to some larger predatory nation that wants to take it over. Mm. So you're going to get that sort of thing no matter what anyway. So there's a couple different ways to go about the national defense objection. One, look, if we're talking purely at the theoretical level, right, the theoretical answer to that question is, you mentioned the right of self-defense. So we all have an individual right to self-defense. This would result in uh, you know, people to whom you could outsource this service. And so they would be you know, your protection agency or whatever, a, a company that does your protection for you the same way you outsource your lawn care or, or your oil changes or whatever. Um, somebody would be in the business of providing that kind of service. So the theoretical argument is that large geographical units um, would find themselves protected by sort of consortial arrangements amongst the smaller ones. Mm. Um, so like lots of different small groups um, would have a consortial arrangement such that, you know, you get bigger and bigger, but not because of any sort of um, political mechanism, but but just as a sort of consortial arrangement. So, if, so I'm sorry, would the would the revolution US revolutionary militias kind of fit that uh, state militias, meaning, you know, the Virginia militia, the New York militia, is that sort of uh, an example of what you're describing? That's an example of a coalition. I mean, those were um, run by the colonial governments. So mm -hmm. that's not strictly anarchistic, but it does sort of illustrate what I'm getting at, mm -hmm. that the local militias, all the local militias could work together to defeat the British army, right. right? So similarly, like, let's say we woke up tomorrow and the territorial United States was one big anarcho paradise. We'd all each have our own protection agency and those would vary in size and scale, um, but we'd all have one because we'd all want that. Um, but it, it makes sense that each of those would have some sort of arrangement with each other for mutual 
defense of somebody else incursioned against them. Um, so anyway, that's the theoretical answer to how an anarchist society would deal with what we might call national defense, consortial arrangements of the smaller private protection agencies mm. that would surely exist. In the, you know, in the real world, of course, um, that's, you know, we, we wouldn't have to answer that question until we had that kind of a society. And of course we don't. Um, so we have the government that we have, and of course it's true that it ought to protect us against being invaded by foreign nations. It doesn't follow from that, of course, that it should go around invading other nations or stirring up trouble, but right. it should certainly function as a protection against foreign invasion. As long as we've got a government and a military, that's what it should do. Um, so the, and that's not inconsistent with the theoretical answer because the theoretical answer how would we solve that problem is moot if we don't actually live in that society. Of course, you might say, then what's the point of anarchism in general, right? Because, right, and that's a perfectly good question. Mm. I, I, said, I started by saying, look, imagine we woke up tomorrow and it was an anarchist Paris. Right, but of course that's not gonna happen. Right. Um, because that would require people who have power to give up their power. Exactly. I don't know, I have any delusions about the likelihood of that happening. So, the, so you know, asking what, like, so you think you've got this great argument for anarchism, but what's the point? I don't think that we're going to somehow evolve into an anarchist society anytime in the next century. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not under any weird illusions about how that's going to go. But that does open me up to the question of what's the point. So there's two points, right? One point is, I don't care whether it's going to happen. I'm just following the arguments where they go. And if this is the logical conclusion of the argument, then so be it. And that's, you know, as, you know, as a, you know, that's a philosopher seeking truth. So whatever, <laughs> as long as we get to the correct conclusion of the argument, that's, right. that's what it is. Um, but the other answer is it establishes a kind of uh, lodestar to evaluate what our actual governments do. Mm. So we've got a government. And then it's going to do this thing and that thing. And we want to say, well, is that a good thing for it to do? Or is that a bad thing for it to do? And so the idea that there's no theoretical justification for coercive centralized authority is one way that you can have, sort of have a template for answering that question. So you say, well, you know, should the government protect us? You know, should the government protect us? You know, let, let's say uh, the Russians decided to invade. Should the government protect us against that? Yep, sure. They should totally protect us against that. If you say, well, um, should the government stop brown skinned people from coming to this country? Nope, that would not be a legitimate function of the government. Right. So, right. so even if, even if uh, as is surely the case, anarchism is not likely to happen anytime soon, it's still valuable philosophically to give us a sort of um, you know, North Star for establishing what would be a good thing for the government to do will be the bad thing for government to do. Um, and anything that the government does that protects liberty, that's good. Anything right. that the government does that violates liberty, that's bad. Mm. Yeah, and and I, I I kind of agree with you on that answer. <clears throat> it's kind of funny because as you're talking, uh, in my own head, I'm trying to almost predict like uh, one of these autocorrect things. You know what your next words would be, and it's funny that along the way, I either matched them in my head or came very close. Like you 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 said North Star a couple of times. I kept saying Compass in my head. You know it's you know so I, I kind of like that. Um, but this is an argument or a debate or a discussion I get into with several friends of mine, notably my partner here at Grumblings who considers himself a conservative. You know, he would say a lot of times, I, I share a lot of your libertarian ideas. You know, certainly I'm a free marketeer. I believe in that sort of thing. But, you know, on, as a practical matter, anarchy doesn't work. Libertarianism doesn't work. You know, you should just, rather than quote, split us up, you should be joining us to, you know, and I said, but you need people like me and Professor Scoville, because what happens is we're your, we're your guidepost, we're your compasses, right? When you stray too far from these core ideal ideals in order to win an election, um, I think then it defeats the purpose, right? So, I, I, you know, full disclosure, I'm no Trump fan. Um, and most of these discussions take place with Trump supporters, because I, my claim is he's so far from anything that could have even, if you've even found conservatism in its 
purest, most ideological, close to libertarianism form, um, he represents none of that, whether it's on economics or uh, personal liberties or anything. There's some things he did that I agree with, you know, like the right to uh, bypass the FDA to take medication uh, that you felt might help you. Sure, great. I, I agree with that decision, you know, uh, less regulation in most parts. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tariffs? No. Subsidizing the people he hurt because of his tariffs? No, right? So um, my response to those folks has always been similar to what you said. A, it's the right conclusion, right? Libertarianism, anarchy, minarchism, whatever you choose to decide to label to take on is probably the right conclusion. Um, but much to your point, are libertarians all of a sudden going to be a major third party? Are they going to be taking over chunks of government? No. Plus, you're left with the logical contradiction uh, um, running for government to ensure that the government has almost no bearing on your life. Um, and how, how do you accomplish that, right? I, I mean, if people want to do that, that's, you know, that's fine. You, you could say my goal for getting into positions of power is to erode the uh, abuses of power and you know people can do that and that mm -hmm. would be two things about that though one is typically once people get power they like using it and right. so they often don't roll it back as much as they may have hoped that they would have or as much as you hope that they would have the other thing is um that they may not even be capable of rolling it back as much as they would because that would just be one person right so mm -hmm. let's say you know let's say i became you know a senator from this state Okay, that, that would never happen. But let's just say that they elected me senator. Okay, I'd be one among 100 senators, right? So I would introduce all these bills that would roll back the abuses of people's liberties. Nobody would support them anyway, right? So I would be completely ineffectual if I stayed true to my ideals, or I could start compromising my ideals and say, well, we'll just do a little of this. And next thing you know, I'd, I'd look like all the rest of them. Um, so I, I get that that's a real problem for practical politics. And this even affects the Libertarian Party because mm. you know they, they want to get power. They want to get people into office. That means that they'll appeal to whatever they think will be more appealing. At the moment, a sort of anti-liberal populism seems like it's animating a lot of people. That's how Trump got the Republican Party away from the free marketers, mm -hmm. this sort of illiberal populism. So the national LP has now been taken over by those factions, too. So if they succeed in getting more power because they're appealing to anti-liberal positions, that's great for them individually because now they get a seat in the Congress or whatever. But it's really bad for the philosophy of individual liberty. Um, because they're, uh, you know, they're not doing that, um, or they're, they're representing at most a kind of, uh, you know, half-baked combination of liberty principles and anti-liberty principles. So I'm not, you know, I, I never identify, I've never identified as a capital L libertarian member, member of the party. I've, I've never identified as that anyway, but even, but now I think they're even worse than things used to be because of their perceived need to appeal to that sort of illiberal populism uh, that's also grabbed a lot of the Republican Party. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. Okay, uh, we're coming up on about an hour. So let's wrap this up because I want to be respectful of your time, uh, Professor Scoble. So um, I know you said you hate doing this, but if you were to hang one of the various labels we discussed uh, today uh, on yourself, uh, which one would you choose? Lately, I mostly go with classical liberal mm -hmm. um, because that's of all all of the labels are going to have some connotation to somebody that isn't what I meant to convey but I think that's got the least of those sorts of problems it captures the idea that um, you know the idea in liberalism of freedom for the individual and you know the moral equality of all persons right. um, Classical as a modifier differentiates it from what liberalism became, you know, in the in the 20s and the progressive era and then later in the New Deal and, and, and whatever, where it became a, a sort of mixture of uh, the classical principles about the freedom and dignity of each individual person with strong state interventionist things. Um, so in which I want to differentiate myself from as well. So um, classical liberals probably the least uh, confusing or at least misleading label that, that I could use. 
Um, but again, it would depend on who I was having a conversation right. with. If, if I was at a bunch of, you know, if I was hanging out with six other libertarians, then I, I might say something like, you know, you know, anarchism is the way to go or something. But I don't go out on the street and then hand out business cards saying I'm an anarchist. <laughs> anarchist professor, yeah. Yeah, because that just leads to the, again, it's like, so is this guy saying we should throw rocks at the Starbucks windows when the G7 <laughs> conference is in town? Is this, right. is this I hate corporations? What, you know, and so, I, you know, that's, I don't want to go with any, any of those sort of misleading impressions. So I, lately, I just go with classical liberal. Fair enough. And, that, and that's a good one, by the way. Okay, let's end this on what I like to call silly questions. Sure. Uh, I'll throw a couple out at you. Uh, first one, philosopher that had the greatest impact on you? Probably Aristotle. Okay, Aristotle. Aristotle is the philosopher whom, upon reading, made me want to go to grad school in philosophy. Okay, Aristotle it is. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, second one, is there any politician in United States politics right now that doesn't cause revulsion in you that you might consider supporting, whether locally, nationally, uh, anything? Like, for example, is it someone like um, Justin Amash, say, who looks like a front runner in the, uh, in the Capital Libertarian Party? Um, or is that something you just avoid sort of making a decision on altogether? I mean, I, it's not. It doesn't occupy a large amount of my brain time, but I, what I've seen of Justin Amash, he seems like he's got good principles um, to the point where he left the Republican Party because of his understanding that they had gone away from what he thought were correct principles. So right. he seems like he's got some principles and, and would be you know, worth, um, worth some of my time. I didn't think Gary Johnson was a bad idea either. I, I, I thought Gary Johnson was a perfectly good candidate, uh, and it was sort of um, amazing that he didn't do any better than he did, mm -hmm. since he didn't come at it from a, a sort of weird, fringy, third-party kind of position, but rather he was literally a two-term governor of a state um, who happened to believe in all these principles. Um, so I thought he would have gone further than he did, So, but, but I did think he had you know, sort of the right views about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but we already know empirically that he's not, you know, gonna gonna win big at all. But you know, Amash seems like he's got some principles. But as I said, I don't really um, like. I'm not that active in LP politics at all. Okay, fair enough. Um, favorite movie, any genre, any time period. It's a toss up between Casablanca and The Godfather. Mm. Um, I think those are those are the so the best examples of, uh, you know, the use of film to tell a story and, and evoke emotions. Um, uh, and it's, it's hard for me to pick between those two. So That's I'll, fair just, enough. That's I'll a good wimp enough. out and, and give you those two answers. Fair enough. Good answer. Oh, I don't know if, have you happened to catch the series documentary on the making of The Godfather? I think it's called The Offer on Paramount. I want to. I don't get Paramount Plus, so I haven't watched it yet, but I, I, I'm tempted to subscribe just to get that show because I, I definitely wanted to see that. Yeah, I, I actually joined on their free trial subscription just to see that, uh, you know, and it, it's starting out. It's interesting. It's almost like it mirrors the actual storyline of the movie, which I thought it was kind of interesting. I'm, I'm sure I'd love it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you would. Uh, uh, favorite band or musician? Feel free to narrow it down to two if it's... Ooh, uh, that's tricky. Um uh toss up between and depending on mood led zeppelin or steely dan hmm. um big fan big big fan of both of them um and that that's you know that's that's in the rock world there yeah no that's fine that's different fine. some different wings i guess um, yeah yeah you know i i also find that libertarians tend to have at times when you when i ask them this question they tend to narrow it down to two two groups that you don't think would usually play together you know like for me people are when they ask me I'll, I'll tell them like the Ramones and Van Morrison and I get these quizzical looks like how how did you come up with those I get that from my wife we've been married 30 years and she's she still cringes at that response right because she can't figure it out but it is what it is right right final question being a good native son of Brooklyn have you ever been able to find a bagel as good as the ones you used to get in Brooklyn Absolutely not. Um, 
I have friends in Montreal who tell me that Montreal makes good bagels, but I've never been there, so I can't verify this independently. But certainly of all the other places I've lived, uh, can't get can't get good bagels outside of Brooklyn, or at least I haven't yet. Um, <laughs> I, I join you in that assessment, by the way. And I'm a Bronx kid. I'm not a Brooklyn kid, but I, I'll, I'll dive in on the Brooklyn bagels are the best. I don't know if it's the water, the practitioner, just the dough. I don't know what it is, but it is what it is. You're right. Nothing better than a Brooklyn bagel with a nice regular New York regular cup of coffee. But anyway, Dr. Scoble, Professor Scoble, Thank you for joining us on the big questions. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope you did as well. And uh, maybe in the future, you'll consent to come back voluntarily, of course, and lend us some more insights. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure for me as well. And I would love to come back on. Um, that would be great. Great. I'm going to hold you to that. Sure. All right, everyone. This has been the big questions with Big John. Join us again next episode with another interesting guest. Until then, peace. <laughs>